Well, good morning, everyone. Thank you, John, for leading us in prayer and reading the scripture passage. All right, today we are uh, continuing our sermon series, Through the Sermon on the Mount, uh, which we have entitled, uh, Through the Looking Glass. And in this series so far, uh, we've been exploring the ways uh, in which Jesus challenges our default thinking and replaces it with biblical understanding. Uh, the idea being that once we've been through the looking glass and seen things from the other side, uh, we wouldn't be able to simply return to thinking the same way again. Um, and uh, we find ourselves now in a section uh, of the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus is coming after the supposed righteousness of the Pharisees and the religious leaders of his day by taking laws of theirs and showing how they've actually used their piety to mask the fact that they've lowered the bar for themselves. Uh, in, in verse 20, earlier in this chapter, he said, For I tell you, unless the righteousness, your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. And so Jesus has identified that there is something deficient about this standard of righteousness that is being measured by these particular laws. Um, he's pointed out that it's not enough for us to simply refrain from murdering people. Uh, we're guilty of it even if we utter vengeful words towards them. Uh, it's not enough to refrain from committing physical adultery when lustful thinking leaves us in the same place. And last week, Pastor Paul taught us about Jesus' teachings on divorce and remarriage and how the Pharisees had created special loopholes that advantaged themselves but utterly distorted the beauty of God's design for marriage and what it was meant to display. And now this week, uh, in our text, we both continue this theme of fidelity and also... Uh, Jesus' exposure of the Pharisees' tendency to twist God's laws to suit their needs. You see, Jesus is proving himself to be a master at drawing out the principles that undergird God's laws. Right? And this was desperately needed because it had been 1,500 years since some of these laws were first given to the Israelites. Um, and the formulations of these laws had changed and were updated so many times and added to, uh, eventually the underlying principles became lost altogether. Um, it's like the world's longest game of telephone. Right? You know, when you put a bunch of kids in a circle and you whisper something into one's ear and they're supposed to pass it on by the time they get back to you, see if it remains intact. Well, yeah, for 1,500 years this had been going on. Um, and so these laws had become... Uh, quite changed in the meantime. Um, and so Jesus is in the middle of reclaiming the principle behind six different laws or law, law groups that the Pharisees upheld, showing them to be loosening the law rather than strengthening it. Now, if, as I would suggest, the Sermon on the Mount is painting the portrait of a complete disciple of Jesus, then one crucial aspect of this portrait is a deep and abiding commitment to speaking the truth in all things. And that, that really is the main point of this text today. So if you're a note taker, 
You can write that one down. Okay, the Sermon on the Mount is painting the portrait of the complete disciple of Jesus. One crucial aspect of that portrait is a deep and abiding commitment to speaking the truth in all things, all right? But let's dig in and see where else, what else is going on here in this text. Uh, and it really it kind of divides into two very unevenly, uh, 33 to 36, and then 37 we can treat a little bit separately. But uh, first, Jesus says again, you have, heard it's, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord your vow, the vows you have made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by earth, for it is footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. You see, in Jesus' day, the swearing of oaths and vows was extremely commonplace. Um, and the types of oaths that Jesus is referring here, is addressing here, specifically refer to promises about the future. Um, you know, where do we recognize this kind of oath formula from? I think most of us would be familiar with, uh, you know, placing your hand on the Bible and swearing. You. I, I solemnly swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, right? Um, this is the way that we are sworn in to a court of law. And this is a context in which you would bear witness or give testimony uh, in a crucial matter. And so it's, it's, it's a situation where your credibility is incredibly important. In that sense, it calls to mind the ninth commandment, right? Where, where God said, you shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. But obviously, that isn't exactly the same law that Jesus is quoting here. Um, clearly, there's been some movement or development in how this law was interpreted uh, and applied. And it seems to have been um, amalgamated, at least in practice, with the third commandment, which is to not take the Lord's name in vain. So much so that by the time Moses is handing down the civil laws, it appears this way in Exodus 19, verse 12. Do not swear falsely by my name, and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. And so these oaths in question are ones, again, where the speaker calls upon God to witness his oath or promise and to punish him if he breaks it. And the issue here is that they're borrowing credibility from God to bolster their own, which is a serious thing, meant to be reserved for serious matters. But what seems to have happened in the meantime is that the practice of oath-taking had migrated out of the courtroom and into everyday life, where the commitment to truthfulness wasn't quite as strong, and so the borrowed credibility was being abused. And to get around this, the Pharisees started to uh, find little ways, uh, little loopholes, and build a complex system of oaths with varying degrees of bindingness. Rather than swearing on the name of God, they started swearing by things related to God, or things more God-adjacent, we might say. Right? Things like, but not limited to, as Jesus mentions, the heavens, the earth, Jerusalem, and their own heads. This is kind of like the adult version of cross my heart and hope to die. Right? They, they're giving themselves wiggle room to default on their word and to not cower in fear before God because of it. But the problem is that they have missed the principle behind these original laws and behind the swearing of oaths in the first place. To swear by anything is to give the appearance of serious commitment. 
right? And it is to give the impression that one's word is sacred and to be honored. Meanwhile, the whole intention of these laws was to give plausible deniability and to leave room to back out of fulfilling one's promises without fear of consequence. And such a lack of integrity is unbecoming of disciples of Jesus. It brings dishonor on him. But it's also childish reasoning. The whole earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Right? Therefore, to swear by anything within the created realm, including yourself, is once again to borrow credibility from God. Sinclair Ferguson said this, No promise can ever be made, no word ever spoken, without it being done in the presence of God. And so the disciple of Jesus speaks every word aware that God indeed is their witness, knowing not only their words, but the very intentions of their heart. Therefore, Jesus goes on to suggest that no oath should be necessary to guarantee a Christian's commitment to truthfulness. Rather, look at what Jesus says in verse 37. All you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. And James later would uh, double down on this. In James 5, he says, Above all, my brothers and sisters, do not swear, not by heaven or by earth or by anything else. All you need to say is a simple yes or no. Otherwise, you will be condemned. And it's interesting how they end there, right? Like Jesus says, anything beyond this comes from the evil one. And James says, otherwise you'll be condemned. So what are they getting at? Right? Jesus, uh, elsewhere in Scripture, refers to himself as the truth, right? He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. The Father is referred to as the God of all truth. The Holy Spirit is, is called the Spirit of truth. God's Word is called the truth. And Jesus is the Word made flesh. Therefore, Jesus is the truth incarnate. And to be a disciple of Jesus, then, as we've been learning throughout the whole Sermon on the Mount, means that we must represent him in everything that we think, do, and say. And so truthfulness is crucial. And listen to what Jesus says in Johnny. He says, to the Jews, uh, this is Johnny 31, to the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. But some in the crowd argued with Jesus. They didn't think they needed to be set free from anything. Uh, their inheritance was secured by their ancestry as Abraham's offspring. Or so they thought. And so Jesus goes on. Why is my language not clear to you? He says, this is John 8, 43. Because you are unable to hear what I say. You belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native tongue, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Yet I tell you the truth, and you do not believe me. So Jesus is truth incarnate, and the devil has no truth in him. Right? He's the father of lies. And so what Jesus is saying here is that those whose native tongues are lies, dishonesty, and distortions of the truth are acting as disciples of the devil rather than disciples of Jesus. Okay, so 
That's what's going on in our text. Uh, the question is, what do we do with that? Um, how many of us are in the habit of swearing oaths in our daily lives? Right? I can't remember uh, the last time I swore on the city of Jerusalem uh, to try and lend some credibility to myself. Um, and I think that most of us would fairly confidently report that we, we honor our word and our commitments, at, at least for the most part, right? At least when it really counts. Um, but Jesus, Jesus has included this particular passage in the Sermon on the Mount for a reason. And that reason is that fundamentally, then as now, every single one of us hearing this today, Christian or not, has a complicated relationship with the truth. And we desperately need to deal with it. So what follows are a few suggestions for what that might look like. First, we need to take a long, hard look at ourselves in the mirror. And we need to be honest about our dishonesty. We have to stop minimizing our tendencies to deceive. Um, right now, uh, one of the things I've been doing is, is, is work leading three separate groups through versions of the curriculum of how people change. And one of the things that we've all been learning together is that change starts here, right? It's, it's, it's completely uncomfortable, but the path to change and growth leads through honest recognition of our desperate need for the Holy Spirit's help. Right? We need to confess the ways in which we have chosen to hold ourselves up to low bars, human standards, like the Pharisees of Jesus' day, rather than letting Scripture diagnose our hearts with painful accuracy. Uh, one of the images that we use in that curriculum is that we, uh, left to our own devices, we tend to view ourselves through funhouse mirrors, right? Our, our reflection is comically distorted, it allows us to see ourselves in ways that are completely divorced from reality. But Scripture doesn't let you get away with that. When you hold your life up to Scripture, which is the truth, it shows you the true reality. Um, it's living and active, right? It diagnoses the human heart. Um, and the purpose of all of this, because we're all feeling bad now, but the purpose of all of this is not to wallow in shame, right? But to receive forgiveness, because God stands ready and willing to forgive any sin that we repent of. But we can't repent of that which we refuse to acknowledge about ourselves. So it's crucial that we do it. We desperately need to come to terms with our baseline tendency to duck, twist, bend, and break the truth. All right, so we know all the big ones, right? We know that we need to follow through on our obligations. When your buddy helps you move, and moving sucks. I, I really dislike it. But if your buddy helps you move and you promise him you'll return the favor when the time comes. And then the time comes and miraculously you forget how to answer your phone. Right? Um, or you tell your boss you have, uh, you have a bit more work to do on a project, but you're going to take it home and work on it over the weekend. And your boss being the trusting sort. Uh, says, no worries, just record and submit the hours you spent on it. And as you fill out the hours that you spent on it, 
You find yourself uh, justifying building, building your time spent by the pool because, after all, you were mulling the problem over in your head at the time. So technically, you were working, right? Or maybe you committed your time to a ministry on a Friday or a Saturday, but then your friends call and they're going on a last-minute camping trip that sounds so fun. So you call up the ministry coordinator and tell them that you've caught the latest cold going around and you're laid up in bed. Um, these, these are obvious examples, right? These are the kinds of things where we all know what we're doing is wrong. We just don't like it. Nobody needs help seeing these kinds of things. But the, the problem, and I think the problem that Jesus is addressing here is that it's, it's not just about the big obvious lies. It's not about the big obvious deceptions. It goes much deeper than that. The problem is that uh, truth-telling isn't our default setting. And this is most evident in the almost innocuous ways that we disregard truth daily. Here's a scene from our family vehicle. I'm driving, and my wife looks over and she says, what are you thinking about? <laughs> And without, like, no thought whatsoever, I answer, nothing. But do you have any idea how hard it is to think of nothing? Right? There are, there are Zen masters who literally dedicate their entire lives trying to master this. Um, I couldn't think about nothing if I tried. So why lie? Right? It's not like I'm trying to hide anything other than maybe the fact that I think about really dumb and pointless things when I'm driving. Another one, and I bet most of you have used this one already this morning. Someone comes up to you and says, how are you doing today? And without a moment's lapse, we say, good, great, fantastic, how are you? Right? These are reflexive responses that indicates that we are not primarily concerned with what is true. In fact, we're much more concerned with trying to control the interaction that we've just found ourselves in and to steer it into comfortable waters. The truth is not our default. And this is those, again, those are seemingly innocuous examples, but they become more obvious when we begin to look up the, uh, the up to 100 white lies that North Americans statistically tell every day. See if you recognize any of these. Uh, you're just leaving your house. Uh, you're, to be honest, you're not even in your car yet. And you text, just around the corner. Or, be there in five. Right? Uh, or when you inevitably arrive in 15 instead of, I've been, traffic was crazy. <laughs> right? You come across an email from five days ago. Uh, that you didn't feel like dealing with at the time, but you forgot to flag. And then you start to respond with, oh, I was cleaning up my spam folder. I came across this. I don't know how it got in there. Right? Someone invites you to do something that you're not super enthused about. Oh, that sounds super fun. Let me go check with my wife. What do we have going on that day? <laughs> right? Give me something. <laughs> White lies. Right? Or so we call them. Uh, we assume they're not hurting anybody's feelings. Uh, they're just helping to keep the peace. And, or so we justify to ourselves, right? Um, a woman named Pamela Meyer, author of a book called How to Spot a Liar, she had a pretty successful TED Talk. 
where she talked about the pandemic of deception, as she called it. Um, she said this. She said, we are deeply ambivalent about the truth. We parse it out on an as-needed basis. Isn't that a fact? We could care less about the truth if it doesn't advantage or disadvantage us in some direct way. Right? Most often, we're content to just take it or leave it. So why does it matter? Sorry. But, however, (laughs) we love and champion the truth when it's convenient for us or it somehow advantages us, right? And and likewise, the flip side, we often can't go to great enough lengths to conceal or obscure the truth if it makes us look bad. So why does this matter? It matters because God's basic nature is truth. And he is unchanging. And so any deviation from the truth, no matter how minor, no matter how seemingly harmless it may be, is a movement away from God. And the biblical word for that is sin. And is therefore a much bigger deal than we think it is. And we be deterred from it. All right. So if we call ourselves disciples of Jesus, we need to align ourselves to the values of Jesus' kingdom. How do we start? We start by identifying our complicated relationship with truth and repenting of it, right? But then, what do we do? Secondly, we, we have a role to play. For those of you who have been around during this series, uh, I don't know, you might remember that there's an impact that the disciples of Jesus are supposed to have in the world. Uh, the last installment that I preached in this series was on the passages about salt and light, right? Well, there we learned that the job of Jesus' disciples is to preserve and promote what is good and right in the world, We are meant to cultivate our little corner of influence that has been assigned to us. Just as God, the creator, spoke order and beauty out of chaos and darkness in the beginning, we as his image bearers participate in this work to the degree that we commit ourselves to speaking and promoting the truth. And there is very practical payoff to this. Because we have to recognize... The truth gives us exactly what we think our lies give us. The truth sets us free, right? But deception and lies entangle and snare and enslave us, and they also harm those around us, right? They create confusion rather than clarity. They promote fear and paranoia rather than peace. Just think of all the many great books, movies, TV shows that have been written about this plot line, right? One seemingly small uh, lie or deception uh, snowballs out of control, requiring more lies and more deception to maintain it and to stay out in front of it. And, uh, you know, before you know it, you can hardly breathe just watching it unfold on a screen. The anxiety has been ratcheted up so high. And it always ends the same way, with the lives of the protagonist and everyone around them ruined. And we watch these things as cautionary tales. And even from a purely pragmatic and atheistic worldview, the truth is always better. Sam Harris wrote a book called Lying uh, a while back, and Neil deGrasse Tyson, another famous atheist and astrophysicist, wrote one of the, one of the supporting blurbs for the book. And in it, he said that Harris compels you to lead a better life why? Because the benefits of telling the truth 
far outweigh the cost of lies to yourself, to others, and to society. And Pamela Meyer, whose TED Talk I referenced earlier, her commitment to this topic is for the same reasons. She believes that the truth always yields better results for all involved. It creates positive feedback loops. See, speaking the truth invites the truth as well. Right? We often, uh, we often claim to withhold the truth uh, out of love or concern for others. Right? When I duck your inquiry into how my week has been, I might think to myself, uh, you don't want to be bummed out by the details of my crummy week, so I'm actually sparing you. You should thank me. Um, but the truth is, if we dig a little deeper, far more often we're being motivated by fear and self-interest, right? Sometimes, uh, sometimes I just don't feel like getting stuck in that conversation right now. And other times, I simply don't want to invite your scrutiny into my life. And I expect quid pro quo. But the body of Christ is meant to be one in which all the parts build one another up together in love. Right? Our relationships ought to be characterized by an openness that welcomes both the accountability and the encouragement we so desperately need as fellow pilgrims on the way. As disciples of Jesus, that is the role that we have to play. We have a role to play in each other's lives, whether we like it or not. And we can't fulfill that role if we don't let one another in. So this is the kind of environment that is supposed to exist inside the church. And I've heard uh, many of you lament the fact that it doesn't feel this way sometimes. Well, here's one way you can help to create this kind of environment in the church. Be ready to answer the question honestly next time you're asked how you're doing or how your week has gone. And on the flip side, be prepared to listen when you pose the question to others. Right? One of the reasons that we, it's so easy for us to be ambivalent about the truth is that we, we've made all sorts of unspoken agreements to avoid it together. Right? Somewhere along the way, we decided as a society, it's polite to simply say, I'm doing fine and move on. So we need to challenge these unspoken sanctions by both speaking truthfully and inviting truth. But this isn't just about you and me. And it's about more than doing what benefits us most. Ultimately, it's about the gospel. Right? The gospel is the ultimate truth. We are here today to worship a God who is the ultimate oath keeper. That's why we worship him, right? The earliest rumblings of Jesus' work of redemption came immediately after the fall. Right? He then reiterated these things in his subsequent covenants with Noah and Abraham and David. With each passing era, he says, I have promised to send my Messiah to right all that is wrong. Trust me and be patient. You know, and a few weeks ago, we celebrated Easter. What were we celebrating? Right? We were celebrating the ultimate follow-through, right? the eons-old promise being fulfilled fully and finally, as Jesus said, it is finished. Right? He then rose from the grave and ultimately ascended to the throne of his kingdom of truth where he now reigns supreme. And how can we be ambassadors 
of this kingdom of truth if we are not likewise radically committed to the truth ourselves. The church has all the potential to be a fountain of truth from which the peace, joy, hope, and healing that all of us truly want freely flows. It starts first in our own hearts as we repent of our default toward deception. It then spills over into our familial relationships with one another as brothers and sisters in Christ, as a new culture is created in the church. And then finally, the truth that set you and I free spills over into the world around us, offering that same freedom to all who will come and receive it. That is the power of the truth, and that is why it matters so much to Jesus. All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father and Almighty God, thank you that you are the ultimate oath keeper, Lord, that you are ultimately trustworthy, steadfast, faithful, and that you've proven this to us once and for all at the cross of Christ, who takes away the sin of the world and sets liars and deceivers like us free. Holy Spirit, help us to be ruthless in rooting out the self-motivations that tempt us to deceive and to lie. Lord, daily lead us into repentance and equip us to participate in the kingdom of truth as fitting ambassadors of the king who is truth, Jesus Christ, in whose perfect name we pray. Amen.